Hello, everyone. This is Ron Small, and welcome to episode seven of this podcast, which you can find on iTunes and at swayproductions.com. Today, I spoke with one of my heroes, Stu Mashowitz. Stu is a great visual, narrative, commercial director, as well as the writer of one of my favorite filmmaking books, The DB Rebels Guide. He's one of those guys who, in his book and on his blog, Prolost, is continually sharing his methods, his various mistakes, and, uh, and how he's learned from them. I've learned a, a tremendous amount from him and continue to learn from Prolost, which is really like a, a potpourri, if you will, of filmmaking goodness. He covers uh, digital grading, screenwriting, camera gear, and he does it with a real sense of joy and excitement about the medium. As a show note, some of you have emailed and Twittered me inquiring as to where you should go to find the guests' videos on the show that, that I speak about with them. Um, I should probably mention this more. If you go to swayproductions.com and click on the Spotcast link at the top, you'll see the show notes for each episode in which I attempt to link to all the spots that are discussed over the course of each show. Now, I know this might sound a bit like homework, but I think to really get the most out of this show, it's really helpful to watch the videos before listening to the interview. I mean, if you're already going to spend upwards of one hour listening to this, why not get the most out of it, I say. For me, uh, discussing the specifics of certain videos is really important to what I'm trying to do with this show, which is to learn about how and why specific decisions were made, why things might have been shot a certain way, uh, and so on. It's particularly helpful to me as I make plenty of bad and and good decisions, I think, in my work. So learning about all these guests uh, I've had on and, and their process has really given me insight into my own, and hopefully we'll do the same for you. We open the interview with a discussion about why Stu chooses to put so much of his process out there. There are not a lot of people at your level who are so adamant about doing what you do, in a sense, uh, demystifying the process. What drives you to uh, share your secrets, so to speak? You know, people ask me often, you know, why I keep the blog, for example, and, and I've, I've said before, and this is a quotation that I, I, is, is hard to attribute because so many cool writers have said it, but some variation on the idea of I write to find out what I think. And, uh, you know, even as far back as my, uh, you know, science teacher in, in junior high school told me that if you can't explain something well, then you don't truly understand it. So all of these things, I think, really are just parts of my personal exploration and kind of attempt to better understand this stuff. I, if, if, I was con- if, if I was better at thinking about stuff in a vacuum, then I guess I wouldn't need to share the ideas. But by writing them down and kind of forcing them to make sense to someone else, uh, I, f- I find out what I really think about something. And what do you find in the kind of give and take aspect of a blog in which you're essentially having a conversation uh, with your audience. Yeah, yeah, I, I really enjoy that as well, and I feel very fortunate that um, that the conversation that tends to happen on my blog and in my Twitter feed is is generally pretty elevated. I, there's a very active topic of discussion in the kind of blogging world right now about the value of comments. And there are quite a lot of blogs out there that have, 
you know, the type of comments that you might tend to see on like a YouTube video or something where they're, they're pretty worthless and they're kind of uh, thoughtless and, and, and maybe even mean spirited or just, uh, uh, offhandedly cruel. And, and I, I don't get those on Prolost. I get comments on my blog posts that I feel like are as good, if not better than a lot of blog posts that I've read out there. So I feel just really fortunate that my little corner of the internet is populated by a bunch of really cool people who I feel privileged to know. And every time those people contact me on Twitter or post a comment on my blog, I just feel, you know, lucky and, and honored that they chose to take the time to do so. So I, it, it's, it's been fun for me to allow my blog to be a platform for people to share their thoughts. It's not something that I thought would be the case, but uh, it, it's turned out to be a really, uh, a really good thing. Yeah, it's interesting how you've kind of cultivated that that sort of group where you know there's places like, like uh, I guess the Red User Forum where it's kind of notorious for negative kind of uh, comments and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a weird thing about a culture that that is hard to quantify and hard to you just don't know. You know, you, you look at YouTube and you see mean comments, and you look at Flickr and you see nothing but praise. And just how did that happen? Like, how did that shake out? What 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 happened at the very beginning to instigate those those two very different cultures? You know? Yeah, no, it is interesting. I think the same thing with Vimeo. You know, um, yeah. where the comments tend to be very nice. Uh, you know, on the very kind of positive side. Um, I think you know it, it tends to be maybe um, when when it's other artists commenting on other artists um, yeah. as opposed to to YouTube where everybody can join in. Yeah, I think I think I think you're you're onto something there, and I, I think you know it's interesting. At Red user, there's kind of a sense of people being a bit. There's you know Red is kind of a victim of their own success. They generated so much hype and interest in what they were doing that the, you know they were the, the the price they pay for it is that they have a bunch of of fans who um, you know maybe don't have a camera yet to to be preoccupied with. So they're they're preoccupied with discussions about it, and that you know that's that's a that's it's a good problem for them to have because they have such a great you know they have such a great attention out there in the world um for for me um yeah i feel like the way i write and the type of stuff i write about is preoccupied with real work and real work that i'm actually doing but it's also aspirational it's also kind of what's next what's around the corner what do i want to try to be doing next and 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 i i feel like that always that always uh that always means that i'm kind of like running down the end of the hall and peering around the corner and, and kind of, you know, saying, come on, guys, let's go see what's down here. And, and, and that, that means that the people who tend to kind of follow along with what I'm doing are, are similarly curious, I guess. Absolutely. I mean, there's an inclusivity, I think, to, to your writing, uh, whereas I think, um, I mean, not to pick on, uh, you know, the red user thing, but the camera itself was so disruptive, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and it almost feels like the, uh, the fans have to be disruptive in, in that, that way as well, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean by kind of victims of their own success. I don't think, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, just a, it's just kind of part and parcel with the, their kind of rebellious uh, way that they're doing things and, and uh, you know, good on them for doing it. So uh, it's, but, it, but I, I am interested in that kind of thing. You know, I'm, I'm interested in the cultures that spring up around online things sure and that's why i just feel lucky that the that the one i've i've got going on my site is is as good as it is because i actually feel like i can post something as simple as just you know 
Apple released a new update to Final Cut Pro, and and the comments will actually, you know, I didn't have much to say about that. You know, not not this most recent update, but when when they first announced it, I, I didn't have much to say about it. I just posted that it happened, and the, and the comments were actually like they kind of wrote my blog post for me. That was a bit lazy of me, but that was a that was an extreme case of like the comments really kind of pulling doing pulling a lot of weight on the site. So. Right. What were some of your uh, cinematic influences when you were growing up? Um, well, you know, I'm I'm kind of the I guess I'm the Star Wars generation. You know, that's the movie that I saw when I was very young that I remember most formatively, I suppose. And and my father uh, was and still is a photographer and had a Super 8 camera when I was growing up. So I have that kind of J.J. Uh, Abrams Super 8 kind of uh, nostalgia for 80s. Uh, you know, adventure and action movies combined with, uh, you know, early access to uh, photographic and filmmaking equipment that I feel very fortunate about. So I was the kid who was in the backyard doing stop motion animation mm -hmm. and, um, you know, blowing up my toys with firecrackers and things like that. Um, I went to CalArts uh, and I went to the... Um, uh, experimental animation program there which is kind of a hybrid of live action and animation which uh, I didn't realize it but was actually kind of the perfect place for me in terms of um, doing special effects I wound up making a lot of short films while I was there and doing all the effects for them and so when I graduated uh, after four years at CalArts um, a big shift was happening in the computer animation industry and I was able to basically uh, I was I became the youngest person that ILM had ever hired. It was such a there was such an upheaval. They were about to you know go from doing Jurassic Park to doing Jumanji and Casper. So they were taking the computer graphics department from 60 people to 600. Mm -hmm. So it was a great time for me because they were so desperate that they were willing to hire someone with as little experience as I had, which was none. And uh, after a year, I was I was working on Star Wars. You know, I was actually helping to do the um, the this the special edition of the original Star Wars so I, right. I you know it was a it was it was just a classic kind of I don't know dream come true scenario of like here I am working the dream job and I'm still in my early 20s and then that led to a really important realization which was actually that my dream job was not to literally just do special effects that I wasn't actually satisfied with just executing effects on other people's material that I really was a filmmaker at heart and that that those short films that I was making at uh, in film school were actually my you know they were my primary uh, focus not my secondary focus so after four years at ILM I left with two other guys Scott Stewart and John Rothbart and we formed a company called The Orphanage and with a with a very naive and ambitious goal of creating a miniature version of what George Lucas had, basically his own film production company that had the the uh, ability to do effects both for other people as a as a fee for service kind of a business, but also uh, that we would own the means of production and be able to do our own original film productions. Right. And uh, we ran that company for ten years, and that was where I uh, developed my career as a commercial director. Real quickly, back to the Star Wars thing. So that's kind of amazing that 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 was your you know that was your kind of touchstone as a kid, and and you got to work with George Lucas on yeah. his sort of um, uh, I guess reimaginings of of certain aspects of it. What was that like? I mean, when you were doing that, were you um, 
were you thinking, uh, this is so cool, you know, that I'm, I'm getting to work on this? Or what, what were you thinking about the actual process of, of what you were doing? It was, it was amazing. I mean, it was, it, it felt like such a privilege, you know, to be, uh, to spend my days, you know, but back then it was, this kind of stuff was hard, you know, it was slow and hard. The, and and the, the computers were underpowered by by today's considerations and the tools were extremely technical and so they would give you a lot of time as a result and i i spent you know the better part of 2 weeks just working on color correcting boba fett to you know an element of the um kind of model or the 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 you know the model shop like archive curator don b's dressed up as Boba Fett walking around on a green screen stage shot, you know, with modern VistaVision camera equipment, um, you know, compositing him into uh, a a crazy, you know, distorted archive scan of original, you know, 1976 Star Wars photography and working out how to make it look like it fit in there you know that i just i mean every day i would just arrive at work and think this is unbelievable that this is what i get to do for a living you know um it was the you know the, the every everyone of course wants the dirt and the kind of like corollary story to that which is like the harsh realization that um you know maybe that the special edition stuff that we were adding to those star wars movies wasn't going to turn into the version of those movies that everyone would want to hold in their hearts for the rest of their lives. And, um, you know, that, that, that I, I would be lying if I said that I was tangibly aware of that until I had spent a year working on star Wars episode one and, uh, and then went and saw it in the theater and then went and saw it in the theater again and kind of slowly, it slowly began to dawn on me that, um, you know, that Star Wars wasn't going to be this escalator to the absolute transcendency of my filmmaking career, you know, right. <laughs> that I couldn't just hop on the Star Wars escalator and just ride it to the top, you know. And, uh, and, and that was, you know, that's a great, that's a very important, like, I finally killed the six-fingered man kind of a realization for, <laughs> for anyone to have, you know, is yeah. that, is that uh, um yeah, it's 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 the way I always feel about like film school. I don't look at film school or any kind of education as an escalator that you ride. I look at it as an obstacle course that you navigate, and uh, that was certainly my career at ILM as well. Um, I uh, I had a big realization while I was working at ILM that I didn't feel that visual effects should be as complicated or as technical as they were. And so when I met John Knoll and he offered me the chance to join what he was calling the Rebel Mac unit and start to do visual effects on off-the-shelf uh, software and hardware, I jumped at the chance because what I saw him doing uh, while I was working on Jabba the Hutt for Star Wars uh, re-release, he was working on the space battle and he was doing it all uh, on his beige Mac and I just thought he looked like he was having so much fun. So uh, I got, you know, so I, that's what I wanted to do. And, 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 that, and that eventually, that impulse of like, you know, it's more fun when we do this with the sort of garage kit kind of impulse, you know, it, it, it certainly harkens back to those Super 8 stop motion days. And it was the reason that ultimately I had to quit my dream job and go uh, start my own company with, with two friends because I, I wasn't, 
I wasn't happy just kind of doing the, you know, just kind of sitting at that high level of that type of work and just comfortably cranking out, uh, you know, blockbuster movie widgets. I, I, I wanted to take a little bit more scrappy approach to it. You worked cl closely with George Lucas when, um, when that was going on, or was he, or did he kind of come in with you and several animators and sort of dictate what he wanted? Or I'm just curious what the process was behind that. Yeah, it, it, it was um, interestingly. George was probably the at the time the director of all the projects I worked on at ILM. He was probably the director that I worked on least closely with because again at the time things were a bit different the the type of work was really hard now it's now it's kind of a big deal that um when michael bay is working with ilm for example that he really makes a point of coming up and visiting quite often and and learning the names of the people working on the shots and talking to them individually um that's that's a, that's unusual now but at the time that wasn't so i was really lucky that i'd be on conference calls with you know steven spielberg or um uh, Barry Sonnenfeld, or you know, or someone like um, you know uh, Jan de Bont, who uh, directed Twister, which I worked on, would come up quite often and knew knew who I was and knew what shots I was working on and signed my copy of the screenplay and all that cool stuff. Like yeah. um, very very different kind of time, I think, in visual effects. Um, George, on the other hand, was a little little you know really trusting of of his supervisors and people like John Knoll. Um, and uh, his his animation uh, supervisor Rob, Rob, Rob Coleman, um, uh, but nevertheless, you know he was there. He was around, and he knew who I was, and 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 he knew to address me when he was talking about something related to the uh, the space battle sequences in Episode One, and uh, you know obviously that just meant the world to me. Um, to be even if I. Uh, in 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 all honesty, I disagree with a lot of the creative decisions that he made. To be in the room with him while he was making them was important for me. You know, it was really educational, and uh, uh, he is an immensely creative guy, and uh, you know, very. It, there's something that you know you learn when you have kids, which is that kids are insanely creative. You know. And slowly the world beats it out of them. And as we become adults, we really have to work hard to maintain, maintain that creativity. And there's a lot that's weird about George in terms of he's kind of a hermit. But in a weird way, maybe that's helped him. I don't know, like, you know, pure speculation here, but hold on to that childlike creativity because he really can do it. I mean, he really just comes up with stuff, you know. And and the, the only thing that you could say strikes against him these days is just that he doesn't doesn't do what he used to do, which is surround himself with people who help him edit the flow of those crazy ideas that he comes up with. You know. Yeah. So so this is kind of what I'm curious about with him because I, you know, I really recognize um, his kind of desire to go back to his work and and kind of improve uh, or you know what he sees improve upon it because yeah. that's something I have with my own work you know when I if I turn in something to a client um, I constantly want to go back to it and fix things yeah. uh, even though it's done uh, so I, I totally relate to that but it's interesting that he's been um, you know he, he's a guy who's been like I think equally celebrated and derided you know by his fans uh, and and I get the impression that he's maybe um, a bit insulated in that I don't know if anybody's telling him you know, if he comes up with an idea, I don't know if people tell him, hey, you know, that, that's not a great idea, maybe. 
Because, you know, people tell me that my ideas suck all the time, but, I, you know, I'm a nobody, so nobody has a problem doing that. Uh, like my, my business partner thinks, like, 90% of my ideas are shit. But, <laughs> th- but does George Lucas have that? You know, does he have anybody, like, call, kind of calling him out on things? I, I'm just curious about what your opinion is on that, and then we'll, we'll, we'll uh, not talk about George Lucas anymore, but just because it's a, a fascinating topic to me. Yeah, I know it's hard. I, I I feel a little bit ill-equipped to you know speak directly to what's in what's inside George's head or even inside his process. But I do. But I can say that you know I was in the room when someone close to George dared to bring up the suggestion that maybe you know Han should not shoot. Uh, should should you know the Greedo shouldn't shoot first. And there <laughs> yeah. was kind of a cold silence in the room, and then it and then we kind of moved on. And I think that was kind of the end of it. And it wasn't like that person was fired. It was just sort of like it was right. clear, like I'm not interested. And and if you want some cool perspective on this, you know, just get get a, get your hands on. Uh, I, I, you know, like one of the kind of semi-recent, it must be on the Blu-rays too. I, I, I would assume, but but it's definitely on the DVDs. The like, um, if you have the DVDs of the Star Wars trilogy that contain mm-hmm. both the unadulterated originals and the uh, and the and the special editions, there's a bunch of supplementary material, and there's a great documentary about the making of Empire Strikes Back, where they show a scene i believe this scene is also available on youtube you 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 can see the scene um they've just arrived at cloud city c-3po is missing um han and leia are put into this sort of rotunda room and and uh and lando leaves them there and and they have a brief chat and in the movie that we've all seen you know Mm -hmm. Han is kind of ex- expressing his desire to trust Lando, even though they have a checkered past together. Leia is expressing her concern for C-3PO and also for Luke. And the scene has an earnest, honest quality of like, you know, I, we're sitting here in this place that feels safe, but I just, we're still on edge, you know? Right. And, and it's, it's, it's a pretty wonderful scene. Um, it wasn't what they originally shot. What they originally shot was something just awful. And you mm-hmm. can see it on this DVD. What they originally shot was a scene where basically Han is trying to get in Leah's pants. And it's, he's all smarmy. Mm-hmm. And the dialogue's really on the nose and kind of lame. And the whole thing just feels bad. And it reminds you of kind of the worst of the prequels. You right, know? right. And, um, and they have interviews with you know, the directors and producers and writers. They have interviews with everybody saying we got this we got this footage back and we rough cut it together and we just knew it was a disaster and we told George that we all, we thought we needed to reshoot it uh and uh and and it's not what they don't have is an interview with George where he says yeah you know what turns out those guys were right <laughs> yeah. but what you but what they do have is the interview footage of everybody else saying we convinced George to reshoot that scene and 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 it it was for the best and you can clearly see for yourself that it was for the best so mm-hmm. you know i mean i guess maybe you know the takeaway there is that that um there was a time where george was uh surrounded by peers who really could you know uh give him a good that good you know that good head check that we that we all need you know you're you're you know i routinely piss off my closest friends because i feel like the best thing i can do for them is give them honest feedback about right. their creative work and um, sometimes I feel like it's a slow process. Like I'll endure 
you know, a week of the silent treatment because I really needed to tell them some honest feedback about their stuff. And sometimes, you know, it's just part of a way that we learn to work together where we read each other's screenplays, we look at each other's treatments, whatever, and we give each other the honest feedback and we're grateful for it there in the moment, even though it's always a little bit hard to get honest notes. Um, but it's such an important part of the process to be, you, you, you know, I guess the example that everyone else thinks of is sort of the paragon of this is Pixar, right? Um, Pixar is kind of the, per, the the great place where the brain trust um, is, uh, you know, where no one person is really allowed to just plow through and just plunder and make their mistakes. Like they, there is a there is a process of checks and balances that really does mean that uh, a person is set up for the the most success they can possibly have in, in their creative endeavors and. Uh, it's it's a topic of endless interest to me because I do feel like you know the work we te- the work we do is collaborative and cumulative and uh, there are so many opportunities to make mistakes and so many opportunities to be rescued from them if you know how to uh, surround yourself with the right kind of people and then be able to hear them in the right way and and process their feedback in a in a way that's useful right. And, you know, I think in a sense, too, that's kind of maybe what your blog offers you, kind of a, a back and forth with your audience, calling you out on certain things or, or what have you. Absolutely. I'm, I'm always happy to be called out on. And I think, I think over the years, I think I've tried to sort of soften some of the authoritative way that I write because I really intend for people to call, call out on things. So if, if I write up a, a roundup of cameras and, and, and 100 people write in to tell me that I'm really an idiot for not considering this one, yeah, I might have my reasons for it, but I, I really do take that to heart, and I, I, I think about it, and and uh, and that becomes more true as the writing gets less technical and more conceptual. You know, I really am interested in uh, thoughtful feedback. So, what did you glean from uh, your years doing uh, visual effects and and working with all these different directors? Uh, you know, being on conference calls and and such, uh, or or working more directly with them. You know, in the case of uh, Robert Rodriguez and Frank Miller. Uh, yeah. What did what did you get from that in in terms of your own kind of growth as a director? Well, I think I guess what I the, the thing that I've been thinking about lately that I know that I took away from that process is that I I have a strong sense that people are easily distracted by visual effects and what they offer. And that filmmakers who, who presented with the physical realities of a camera, a set, lights, actors, props, will make only good decisions. <laughs> can 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 be can be uh, can make extremely poor decisions when when they are given the uh, relatively limitless uh, resources of a place like industrial light and magic. And so, you know, by the time I got to the point in my career where I was working with Frank Miller, for example, I had been through this enough that I knew what to, I knew how to, you know, here I am again working with another one of my longtime heroes. And I'm in this awkward position of having to tell him that I don't think we should do a shot the way he's envisioned it. Right. And and he had he had envisioned this shot sort of flying through 
Um, of course, the movie I'm talking about is The Spirit, which I don't expect that anyone's seen. But um, <laughs> I, I have seen The Spirit. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, yeah. Uh, the uh, it was I had a very good time working on that movie. Um, the you know, and the movie takes place in a, in a in a fictional city called Central City, and this and 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 it is it is obviously New York, and the movie is obviously a love letter to New York, and and um, so Frank had this image in his mind of flying through the city to arrive uh, at the hero's feet, and and I said, you know, let's not do that. Let's not fly through the city in a way that we could never do in real life because it's. New York is this amazing thing. I'm fascinated by architecture and I'm fascinated by like megalithic works of, of man. And, and I, I just, I cannot, I can't get enough of New York. I was, it was like the greatest, you know, uh, assignment of my life to like go there and shoot rooftop photos for all the, you know, matte paintings for the spirit. You know, it was like the most fun I ever had with a camera and my pants on. And that, and that movie has, has New York from all these different eras in one movie, right? I mean, it, it has all these different uh, aspects of New York. Yeah, and and then and and only the parts that Frank doesn't like are peeled away, you know. So right. you can still have people with cell phones, but you know the cop cars are going to be nineteen fifties cop cars, and um, uh, and you're not going to have any like glass and steel. You're only going to have you know kind of the beautiful uh, kind of you know mid century and prior architecture. So, um, you know, so in in because we had talked so much about our mutual love of the city, there is this sense of New York that is like, it, it always feels like there's something new around the corner. Even if you've lived there all your life, it always feels you're always kind of trying to grasp it. And, and, and so to be able to just fly through it is a natural temptation, but it's impossible. And, and the impossibility of that actually helps to keep you sort of romantically interested in it. It's sort of the, it's sort of the corollary to, um, you know the uh, that that uh, a woman in lingerie is sexier than a naked woman. You know, mm -hmm. and 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 so a city that you can't quite ever wrap your head around is 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 more holds more allure, I think, than a city that you can like, you know, fly through in one thirty-second shot. And 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 Frank so got that that he not only changed the design of the shot but he wrote something on his blog saying you know Stu took me to school and explained why I shouldn't do this shot and boy was he right and I was like so flattered and honored by that I could barely get over myself like it was uh yeah it was quite a thrill so I you know th that was a case where I was able to after years uh, at this kind of point out something that I felt was a potential trap that I didn't want Frank to fall into uh which is that sometimes people when given the unlimited opportunities of of uh visual effects um you know will will make creative decisions that don't fit within the boundaries of the type of of, of what's best for the audience's uh, appreciation of things so the, the way i always put this to try to describe to people this sensibility that i have is that i know a lot of filmmakers who are really interested in what visual effects can do, but I'm the visual effects guy who's really interested in what filmmaking can do. And, and, and in the commercial side, I, this happens all the time too, where like I did a commercial for um, this form of legalized uh, gambling for children called Yu-Gi-Oh! And, uh, you know, where kids like get these decks of cards and play these games where these monsters are allegedly fighting. And, and uh, I, 
you know, the, the I envisioned this kind of gritty spot with these kids kind of in this like arena environment, whipping out these cards and these monsters stepping into the light behind them. And the the card company kept asking, well, can't we like, you know, they had their storyboard, that, that, you know, that was sent to me before I before I pitched them my version of the thing. And of course, they had like the the shot of like the kid holding the card and the monster like jumping out of the card, you know. And 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 they're like, don't we need something like that to really show that like the monster is in the card, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and it's it's this fundamental. It's like they've never seen Eisenstein, you know. It's like this fundamental uh-huh. misunderstanding of filmmaking that like it, it, it's like, you know, it's like if if I if I if I just cut from this shot over here to this shot over here, will, will people understand what that is? You know, <laughs> and. And it's just amazing because you're sitting in a conference room, you're just looking at storyboards, and you, as the filmmaker, you you breathe this stuff every day, and you just realize like, no, people don't get it. People, the, the simple thing of like, if I cut from a kid whipping out a card to a wide shot of that kid getting shadowed by this big thing, and suddenly you realize it's a monster, and then I cut in, and it's a cool close up of that monster, that you're going to realize that the it was the pulling out of the card that that caused that monster to materialize. Because of because editing works, you know, because good old fashioned filmmaking works, mm-hmm. and that that is so much better than the elaborate visual effect of having the monster jump out of the card, which would not only look silly, but it would actually undermine any sort of weight or mass or import that the creature had, because you would see it acting like it was made out of rubber, you know, or or like an inflatable balloon or something, you know. So, so all this all this effort to like kind of just reduce these incredibly visual effects intensive ideas back down to just simple filmmaking you know do you find that you're dealing with that uh quite a bit with different clients um on the commercial side of of you know you're so versed in visual effects that they come to you kind of expecting you to uh pull out all your bag of tricks I think that was maybe true for a for a period of time. I don't I don't feel like it's true now because I don't feel like the landscape of commercial making is as rich uh, in terms of the number of visual effects intensive spots that are being done. I, and I don't think it's a tough sell now for people to say I want to take a really grounded approach to this. I want to take a really photographic approach to this. People kind of get that, and there's there's evidence of that being effective that you can point to you know um so but there was definitely a time where i think i got in those types of discussions quite a bit where i I would say let's not do this all in one shot let's not you know every first time director uh, making a short or a feature will do a powers of 10 shot if you let them and we'll do a 360-degree dolly move if you let them. When right. I did my first music video, I did a 360-degree dolly move. It was all I could do to not do a Powers of Ten shot. Um, I think <laughs> that I was already, the share video, right? Yeah, that was the share video. I'd already been cured of my desire to do a Powers of Ten shot because we had just worked on one for for a for a first-time director, and uh, and I had also seen seen one used effectively actually in the first Men in Black movie that I worked on. Um, but but it, it, it was. You know, the Powers of Ten shot is just, unless it is specifically for something cool like how it was done in Men in Black, the Powers of Ten shot is just silly, right? Like, do we really need to know that this movie takes place on the planet Earth? You know, like, is there something so special about your story (laughs) that you need to know, like, that you need to establish the planet on which it takes place, you know? Um, 
And then the 360 degree dolly move is also just this fundamental like misunderstanding of what matters to an audience. You think like, oh, I really want to, I really want to immerse people in this world, or I really want to show that these thoughts are whipping around their head. And it's like, okay, well, first of all, you're shooting, you're shooting a bunch of material, half of which is staring at the back of Cher, which is like no one wants to look at the back of Cher's head, you idiot, you know. And and second of all, you just, you just, <laughs> in my case, it was in order to shoot a 360 degree move of share you have to clear the entire you know we shot we're shooting on a rooftop in manhattan we had to clear out all the crew you know right yeah yeah <laughs> and guess what happened we cleared out all the crew including shares you know hair and makeup crew and and something weird happened with her hair in the wind and we couldn't use half of the material because it didn't look good you know and i'm not the qualified to evaluate shares hair especially while i'm chasing a steady cam operator around in a circle you know so it, it was stupid <laughs> um so yeah i mean i've tried to kind of protect people uh from uh some of my own dumb mistakes too so that was your your first time uh kind of directing gig uh for you were with the orphanage at that point right you'd started the orphanage yeah, that's correct. And we always had sort of this ambition that we would cultivate, you know, directing careers for the principals. Um, but that one came about rather unexpectedly because it was sort of a surprise meeting um, that gave us the opportunity to write on it. And I wrote the treatment and it was it was just one of those crazy cases where, you know, something I've seen happens since then in 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 commercials and also in in features is that people can write themselves into the director's chair if if the idea is right and if it's well received. And um, Cher really liked the idea, and that was kind of the end of the conversation. Even even as Warner Brothers was sitting there going, "Really, we're going to give this million dollar job to this kid who's never done anything before." And... What was it like for you coming from an effects background to direct someone like that? It was scary, of course, but it was also you know, I mean. I had pitched her on an idea that was a little bit different than the types of videos that she usually does, and she knew that. And so we were all kind of doing this crazy thing together, and I quickly learned, you know, the rule of thumb, which is that if, if Cher wants what I want, then I'll get what I want. And so um, I, uh, I did my best to just be honest and forthright with her and not pretend to be anything that I wasn't. And as a result, she... I think took on kind of this sort of mentorship kind of role with me and, and, and was just awesome. I mean, she couldn't have been more professional and just cooler. And, uh, she really, she really worked hard and showed her commitment to the project. And, um, and, and she, she flashed like the diva card a couple times, but only in post, never on, on the set. Um, on the set, she was like this insanely, dedicated consummate professional even to the point of uh on our first day we uh we had trouble with our makeup artist and she wound up doing wound up doing her own makeup and wow. uh and and I you know I just thought like it was over before it started but um but but she uh she rose to the occasion so I you know I guess what I learned this is also what I learned working with Robert Rodriguez is that the more confident a person is the more room they have in their vision for good ideas that come for, from other people. And I've worked with directors who weren't confident. You know, when I was uh, strictly on the visual effects side, I've worked with people who just didn't have that level of confidence. And as such, it, they, they were constantly feeling the need to prove 
that they knew what they were doing and therefore they were not they were missing opportunities for people around them to contribute really useful stuff to their process and uh, whereas Robert would say things to me like I have this idea for what this should look like but I don't know what you can do and there might be something that you could think of that's actually easier for you to do but that looks even cooler and if that's the case by all means go for it don't let my idea limit you you know and don't just do my idea because I said so when it if it's going to wind up being really hard and there's some version of it that's easier for you that that um that's going to look just as good because he knew that if I that I could easily waste a ton of effort trying to execute some specificity of his idea that actually wouldn't translate into audience enjoyment on the screen and he, so he actually respected the finite resources that you know I had to bring to bear and um and wanted me to take responsibility for using them in the best possible way which is just an insane gift to be given and 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 what happens when someone like that trusts you is that you rise to the occasion and you do your best you know and that was where I, that was what i felt with share was like you know she she trusted me and so i rose to the occasion and did my best you know considering that that was such a, a big opportunity for you what kind of headspace were you in was it a, a nerve-wracking experience or were you just kind of doing your best to to get through it yeah i don't know it was both i mean i i focused on what i had to do I, I, I think I think I got through those days. I got through those days, and I th here's what I learned on that. I got through those days, and we, you know, we did a lot in two days. We shot uh, on stages in Brooklyn. We shot on a rooftop in Manhattan, and we shot in city streets of Manhattan in the Meatpacking District. And we shot, you know, uh, uh, set, uh, you know. Uh, City streets, exteriors dressed for period, you know, for five different time periods. I mean, it was crazy. It was actually crazy. And and this was um, right after nine eleven too. It was right after nine eleven, and digital cinematography was still like uh, adventurous new thing. And here we were shooting with this uh, with the the Sony uh, Cine Alta camera and or I guess the predecessor to it. And um, you know, it was just it was probably. Uh, a cascade of irresponsible decisions at the end of it you know my producer and executive producer were very congratulatory of me they, they 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 stood me up at the end of the big table where we were having steaks and said you know not a lot of people could do what you did today and i felt really good about it and then i got in the editing room and i saw the footage and i thought you know what i got through the days but i didn't get all the coverage that i should have gotten like i think i was a little more focused on just surviving the shoot than i was on like being a little bit of a jerk and maybe you know like forcing people to give me a little bit more more of what I probably should have known I needed in the cutting room so you know i i think from from my personal evolution as a filmmaker like i i think i think i've been in a rush too much when i'm on the set and what i've learned over the years and what i wish i had known back then when i was doing that video is that there's nothing cheaper than doing another take of the thing that you already have set up um, and there's nothing more, there's no bigger a squandering of resources than to have to go back and re, you know, reset up something that you already kind of had set up. <laughs> so, so that moment where all the pressure in the world is on you to move on to the next shot, there will be a dozen people standing there going, we really need to move on. 
And it's so easy to just say, yeah, yeah, we got it. Let's do it. Let's move on. But if you at all suspect that you don't, you really should do another take or maybe six more takes because uh, you you will regret it in the cutting room. And you'll look back and you'll think that doing one more take would have only cost us a minute. Whereas, you know, now I'm sitting here scrambling to try to fill a gap or whatever. It was... It was, uh, that, that's been my kind of, uh, you know, it's just a, it's just a confidence thing. It's just a, it's just a, a confidence thing and, and just knowing, knowing kind of what costs what, and just knowing that like, it's, it's worth, you know, so just on my last, uh, my last kind of big commercial gig where I was, had a whole big set full of people, you know, we, 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 we were in a rush and we were losing the light and we were running out of time and we, and we kind of chinced out on how we did a setup and I wasn't happy with it. And I, and I just, you know, I just, I just said, guys, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm not happy with this. We really need to like lay the dolly track and do it right. And, um, and as I said that and sat down kind of resigned to know that I was pushing us behind schedule, I saw, you know, the creative director from the agency, um, uh, he kind of met my gaze and he just nodded at me like, thank you. Thank you for doing it right. You know, and I and I, I realized that I had made the right decision. You know that it would be better to better lose a shot later than to have spent all this time and effort to do a bad job on a shot that we'd ultimately wind up cutting out. So it's interesting how you mentioned that that creative director chose not to say anything to you and and sort of leave it in your own hands. What has been your typical experience in dealing with creative directors on set? Well, I find there are basically two types of creative directors. There are creative directors who knew who I was before we got involved together and really wanted to work with me, and then ones who didn't. And all my best work has been in the former case, and all my worst work has been in the latter case. Um, and it's just kind of that simple. Like, I, you know, uh, this is something that Merlin Mann talks about a lot on his podcast is like, if I have to explain to you the value that I offer, and of course he's talking about his speaking engagements where he goes and bestows his wisdom on a, uh, auditorium full of people. Um, he's come to learn that if he, uh, has to explain to them why that is of value, to the employees that he's going to be speaking to that it's already kind of a lost cause and he should probably just move on. And I've kind of found that too. Like I just last week lost a gig directing a handful of spots for a pretty major client. And at the end of the day, I, I had, there was no hard feelings for me about it because I could just sense that they, that the agency was looking for a comfort factor with a director they'd worked with before, and that's just something I could never offer to them, you know. And if they weren't thrilled at the idea of going into battle with me and kind of the the fresh take on things that I was going to offer, then it just wasn't. There was no version of that that was going to be good. So, uh, thinking of things in terms of setting up for success, I, 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 I do feel like. Um, I can kind of tell right off the bat if there's that trust, if there's that active interest of, uh, you know, a, a group of people who are like, yeah, let's, the, we're excited by what this, what this guy has, has to bring to, to the table. So after the, the share video, did you do any more uh, music videos? That was it. It was, it was, you know, I was on the, the very tail end of the big expensive music video era. Right. And what began to happen then, I wrote, you know, probably a dozen more treatments and I didn't get a one of them. Um, 
and I, I saw what was happening, which is that basically music videos were being directed by about a handful of about 10 people, and there were exactly enough music videos being made to keep exactly that small group of people busy, and it just seemed like it wasn't a world I was going to fight to get into. I, I am not a visual stylist. You know, I'm not a let's come up with some interesting visual abstract idea and intercut it with sexy shots of the band kind of a guy. I am narratively focused, and I just knew that if I kept going as a music video director, I would just be a substandard music video director. I really wanted to make movies, and luckily for me, some commercials are like little movies. And so I slowly migrated my commercial directing career towards things that were cinematic and things that were narrative, and I was very lucky in the sense that I was able to really push them in that direction. And so that was the trajectory that I that I tried to take and you know with varying degrees of success. Did the notion of directing commercials always appeal to you or was that something that kind of came out of uh working uh with the working at the orphanage and and doing those projects? No, it was definitely something that I knew I wanted to do and I didn't exactly know why, but you know it, what ultimately turned into is just it was a great way for me to experiment on someone else's dime, you know, like this is a technique I want to try. This is a camera I want to try. This is a camera work technique that I want to try, you know. So it was just uh, uh, such a gift to be able to pitch an idea that I was curious about on a project that it fit, and say, you know, hey, for you know, for this, for this, for these series of you know anti-smoking PSAs for the state of Arizona, I'd like to be the first one to insert a CG creature into a shot that looks like it was filmed with a hand crank camera, and everyone goes, "Ooh, that sounds cool!" And then we do it, and then it is cool, and that's awesome. And now that's kind of in my bag of tricks as like something I know how to do, you know? Yeah, that series of um, I think it was for Ven- Venomosity was that? Yeah, the, yeah, yep. th- those are amazing and, and absolutely chilling and, and visually stunning. Uh, spots. Uh, can you talk about how those came about and the just the the design of that too, of that look and 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 all that? Yeah, I mean, every once in a while you get lucky, and and that was definitely a case where um, that was uh, Reister was the agency on that fr- from Arizona, and they they brought they brought that. You know, I mean, I, I I just went after that full bore. You know, when that when that brief came in, I just said, I I desperately want to do these. These are great because it combines everything I love. It was a it was a performance element to, with with young actors integrated with a visual effects element, and then and the spots were dark and creepy and awesome. You know, so I I I I, I wrote a very uh, heartfelt treatment for it that included, you know, uh a brutally honest uh, story of, you know, both the fact that, um, you know, my uh, my grandmother and my uh, wife's father both died of uh, tobacco-related cancers. And, you know, I just, I brought a real kind of personal pathos to it. And, um, and then I pitched him on a, I pitched him on a look and I guess to get like practical, um, we had this really cool experience, which is that we needed to find schools to shoot in in Southern California, and we started scouting them, and I had some ideas about where there, there would be. And I ran around with my 5D Mark II to the, on these locations, and I shot location stills. Um, and I made sure to uh, 
color correct them before I posted them. So I had an idea of the look and I had kind of pitched the look in the, in the treatment, but, um, you know, I would shoot a bunch of stills raw, uh, and everyone say, okay, yeah, post those for us. And I'd say, okay, I will, but you know, give me a second. And in that second, like sitting in a Starbucks using their slow Wi-Fi, I would, um, you know, jam all these into Lightroom, um, crop them all to 16 by nine, uh, apply the color correction to one and then copy it to all of them and blast out little JPEGs to it. And the agency was just blown away because it was like, I mean, they kind of looked at me like, this is weird, but your location photos look like what we think the commercial should look like. And I'm like, oh, really funny that you noticed that. Like, it just, you know, it was a process that I had actually used on the Spirit as well as a second unit director. I would take my 5D, which is always around my neck. This is my original 5D, not the Mark II. And I, I would uh, um, uh, just, you know, if I wanted to show something to Frank, I would shoot it. I would dump it into Lightroom. Um, you know, crop it to scope and give it the right look and, you know, dodge it and burn it and whatever I needed to do to kind of sell it, you know, and I'd walk over there with my laptop and I'd say something like this is what I was thinking. And the presentation was so effective that it almost always worked, you know. So that kind of fluency with the technical side of it has been uh, a, a real help in terms of, uh bringing people along and, and, and not having to do as much hand waving and no, no, seriously, trust me guys, it's going to look great type of stuff. Yeah. I also really, uh, I love the simplicity of the Navy SEAL spot that you did. Um, it, oh, it's thanks. such a clever ad. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an amazing ad in that it's, it's ostensibly one shot. Um, and can, can you talk a bit about how that came about and, and the production behind it? Yeah, that was another just, you know, one where you just can't believe your luck, you know, and I, I was busily, I had just finished shooting um, a uh, spot for Ruby Tuesday, which was a really complicated, elaborate spot we shot on 35mm film. Yeah, that's um, a great one too. Uh, uh, it was a Super oh, Bowl spot, right? Yeah, uh, it was intended to be. I, I think it wound up playing, uh, it may have, it played in, in local markets in the Super Bowl, yeah, um, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, play, played a lot during NASCAR games, actually, and uh, um and probably sold more Mini Coopers than it sold hamburgers, but that's fine with me. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, it, uh, and, you know, we shot it um, with the Fraser lens system, which is a snorkel lens system with a bar that had a removable section so that we could run the lens down where the surface of the bar would be. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we, there's a shot where someone accidentally spills a beer and, the, and it splashes onto the car, and I think we actually wound up pouring half of the beer into a Panavision lens in our various attempts to get that shot right. And it was just stressful and hard, and, and, uh, and I was also helping that agency with, 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 um, with other, other spots that I wasn't directing, but I was just sort of consulting with them on, on them, and it was just a, it was a bit, it was several days of hard work. And, and then all of a sudden that, uh, Navy SEALs board came in and I was able to take that whole camera crew and say, guys, we're going to spend a day on a beach and the only thing missing is going to be beer. And, <laughs> and we actually, yeah. So we basically, we, we got a, um, we shot that on the Panasonic Veracam and we shot for, I think we shot for 10 hours and we shot 10 tapes. You know, we just shot from sunup to sundown and we, the camera was rolling the whole time. And, 
the only thing stressful about it was that you know if a wave hit the camera we would have been dead in the water literally so um we it was it was tricky to be constantly kind of uh chasing the tides but it was really as simple as um just not screwing up the agency's really clean beautiful idea that they had spent four years convincing the navy to do and uh yeah i mean so again a feeling of real privilege to be associated with something like that and then um and we shot it day for night. You know, we we um, we shot it in uh, in Southern California, and we um, and we really the the only thing that mattered to me was that I wasn't going to CG anything other than the sky. You know, I was going to replace the sun with the moon, or and and uh, and add my own clouds. But I wanted those footprints to be real because I really wanted to see the water curl around the shapes of the footprints. So we our our our, our navy. SEAL consultant guy, you know, instructed us on what kind of divers booties we should get. And we had, you know, our assistant director and his AD team standing out there in the, in the water, getting waves splashed on them. And, and, uh, we got really good at timing the swells so that we would know when there would be that perfect lull where we'd have a nice big plateau of wet sand for them to traipse their footprints across. And, so they'd be standing out there getting rocked by the waves and we'd all be standing there getting slowly sunburnt, just waiting. And then it's like, okay, guys, run on in. And then you just cross your fingers and hope you get the timing right and wait for that wave. And we got it right four times in, in you know, 10 hours. And the take we wound up using was one that we had shot before lunch. So um, it, was, it, was an, it was an easy shoot in the sense that we did all the right prep. And uh, I learned more about waves on that shoot than I ever thought there was to know. And um, and then it was just one of those cases where you bring that footage back to an editor, and 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 you say, you know, your job is to watch ten hours of footage and then figure out where to put one fade to black. And um, and that was where. I began to slowly get the sense that the best gift that an editor can give you is the fastidiousness and discipline to watch every single second of every piece of footage that you shoot and commit it to his heart and soul so that he can call upon it when needed. And uh, so it was kind of an amazing editorial process because it was two solid days of just watching footage and then about an hour of putting rough cuts together we we put we had four different versions that that we thought kind of worked it was pretty clear to everyone which one was the best and then it was about 2 weeks of post to kind of do the cloud composite of it and the color grade and uh it was you know deceptively deceptively simple in execution because of the amazingly solid idea and good planning and did you ever find out what the Navy SEALs' response was to the ad? All I know is that the ad is still running today. Wow. Which, uh, which, which every once in a while, I mean, or at least at last I heard, it was still running. Like, people uh -huh. still come up to me and say, I saw your Navy SEAL spot again, you know. Yeah. Um, sometimes I think it's come on, and then I, I walk into the room, and I realize that it's a... Um, it's a uh, Corona commercial. Apparently, there aren't really that many... Uh, uh, 
stock libraries of wave sound effects to choose from. But um, <laughs> uh, I, I'm pretty sure the response was positive. I think it was. I think it did well for them, and I think it was the timing was good to kind of start running it again because the Navy SEALs were coming into the forefront. People were starting to realize that, like, you know, the 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 world's sort of attention was on the Navy SEALs at various times over the last several years uh, because of super badass stuff they were doing. And even people with sort of an anti-military point of view would kind of have to agree that, like, well, we could send, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of troops into foreign countries and try to do things. Or maybe we could just, you know, send six guys, you know, in to quietly take care of something. <laughs> and, and maybe that's, you know, better for everybody. So... Uh, so it was the the timing was great for it to have this kind of long life. And, you know, again, I just, you know, I just feel, I, I feel like my, my job on that one was just to like, as it is with some actors, you know, it's just your job as a director is just to not get in the way. So when you're taking on a job, uh, a commercial job, are you kind of more focused on the story of it or, or are you thinking about the product or what, what's kind of your relation to, uh, to the advertising aspect of it? Well, that's a great question. I, I I think that I probably had a bit of that film school sense. I mean, so, so let's, let's take the Ruby Tuesday example. I, you know, my my sense was like, let's make something fun. You know, I was going at it with the with the with the promise that this was intended to be a Super Bowl commercial, and and I, so I was like, you know, I mean, you, I'm sure everyone's seen now that Super Super Bowl commercial that's that's that everyone's linking to on YouTube that uh, with um. Jerry Seinfeld wanting to get his hands on the first uh, Acura NSX, right? Right. Yeah. It's it's like the classic kind of thing that you expect from a Super Bowl commercial. It's long. It's elaborate. It's like overly. I mean, it's just completely crazy over the top. It's got celebrities being silly in it, you know, and and you see the product for two seconds at the end, you know. That's sort of the promise that you have when you when you make that commercial. So I just went into it going, I'm going to make a little a little exciting, you know. I mean, I I sat and I watched, you know, uh the original Italian job, you know. <laughs> I watched all these great racing movies. I you know, I immersed myself into like car culture and uh and and uh, it just so happened that my my wife actually had a red Mini Cooper, and so I took it out and photographed it in various situations. I, I, I you know, I, I, I really threw the book at it. And I did this very elaborate animatic, and I found really cool music for it. So when I, I, I flew into for one day to have a meeting with the agency in New York, and I was able to present them a, a, a rough cut of the commercial animatic together, and they were they were they were blown away. So it was. It was just fun, you know. It was just fun filmmaking, and at the end of the day, um, I didn't think much about selling hamburgers. I don't think anyone really did, and that's why you don't see that. That's why that commercial isn't still running the way the uh, you know uh, the Navy Seal spot is. I don't. It did not run for very long at all. I, I think shortly after they ran it, there were big changes in the marketing decisions that were being made there. So I, I that's that that's like a failure to sell a product for me but that was a huge success for me as a filmmaker right and was, yeah that's, and, and 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 at the time i think that's all i cared about but now you know i mean obviously you you, you spoke at length with adam lissagor and i really i really view what he is doing as the future of advertising and and i now feel that my responsibility as a filmmaker and my and my responsibility as as someone who is making someone aware of a product are probably quite a bit different and that if I wanted to be the best commercial director that I could be 
which is no longer an ambition of mine, um, that I that I would that I would take a page from a very wise dude named Seth Godin, who uh, recently said, I think he was interviewed for Yahoo, and he said, you know, these days there is no marketing. The product is the marketing. And and that's what Adam does so brilliantly. He doesn't yep. sell you stuff. He just explains stuff to you. <laughs> Absolutely. And as as a result, his ads are not ads. They're not they're not forced down your throat while you're waiting to watch a a, a movie trailer on 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 some crappy, you know, flash video site. You follow those links and go look at them because you're actually interested in what he's doing next and what he thinks is interesting and what this company might do because he actually has something to show you that you think might be cool. When he when he was demonstrating how to sell a couch with Square, you weren't sitting there thinking, I can't believe I'm sitting here watching this ad. You were thinking like, I got to get that. That's amazing, you know? And so, you know, I think advertising is dead. <laughs> I I just I I I it's I'm over adver- advertising is like taking advantage of your your out of balance relationship with your audience to force them to have a dumb idea about something you know that like that like smoking cigarettes is the same thing as looking like john ham or whatever you know and uh, i it just i just think people are i just every time i see an ad now where it's a ostensible you know mother and daughter and the mother is saying and the daughter is saying i can't believe this headache i have and the, and the mom like you know in the most vanna white way possible like pulls up a, a, a bottle of some sort of you know p- pain reliever and says well then you should take one of these you know i i just think well there's there's ancient history right there like that's <laughs> yeah and that's the kind of advertising that's been around you know since the 50s and even before then yeah and i can certainly see uh, that kind of advertising being on its way out, or, or even the uh, the broadcast thirty second model of ads. However, you know I do feel that Adam Lizagore is doing an ad. It's just not what we're used to, in that it's you know combining elements of commercial and infomercial in a way that's that's very fun and, and product based, and. And really, what he's doing is is at its core about finding the excitement in human human interaction uh, yeah. with the product. Do you think uh, what Adam is doing will have an effect on advertising agencies and the way they do uh, what they do? Well, yeah, I, I hope it does. I, I here's the thing: like, you know, Adam did that ad for. For um, the Jawbone Jambox, which is a kind of expensive but really neat product, and I really kind of thought I wanted one, but I didn't buy one. Mm-hmm. Then I went to lunch with Adam, and I said, "Is it really as cool as it looks in the spot?" And he goes, "Oh yeah, it's really great. You should get one." And I bought one that day. Now, <laughs> so now there's a case where his ad didn't quite work on me, but it primed yeah. me to be ready. Right. But but that experience that I had where someone I trusted said, no, actually, this is good. You should check it out, is actually what he offers. It's why it matters that he's in his own spots so often. Because he's a guy who you trust, and he's saying, no, seriously, guys, you should check this out. And um, so there's that trust, right? And then there's the the product is the marketing. He doesn't sell you 
square. He just shows you square, you know? He doesn't sell you Groupon. He just shows you how it works. Mm -hmm. It's up to you to close the gap between being sold on it or not. And I think that's really respectful of the audience. And I think for a certain kind of product, that's the only way to do it. And so it's an active topic of thought for me that um, I think we're kind of over the age of abstractions, you know, like where a Gillette razor needs to be sort of semantically associated with a jet airplane in order for you to think that it's going to do a good job of shaving your face. You know, mm -hmm. um, I, I think that I think that the the days are numbered for the jet airplane equals razor blade type of ad. You know, I don't think the days are numbered for the um, for the. Uh, you know, the ads that go viral because they're just fun and they're cool and they're abstract, you know? I mean, how do you sell, you know, yeah, how do you sell body wash to people, you know? I, I think you don't. You can't, there's no equivalent, there's no Adam Lissagor equivalent of the, like, this will make you smell good, you know? <laughs> so there is, like, a brand, like, aspirational kind of thing of, like, you know, the, you know, the Old Spice guy just to turn something that could have been dumb and made it fun, you know? So I think there's room for being entertaining, but I, what I don't think there's room for anymore is for your ad not to be something that a person wants to see. And, uh, the, the, uh, that the whole model of like, uh, captive audience, show them whatever you want, I think, I think is, is pretty much dead. It's at least, at least it's, it's dead in my house, it, you know, it, it, almost it's, it's, we still get a little bit of it with, uh, with Hulu plus. So, so funny that like I canceled cable and started paying for a service that allows me to now for the first time in years actually be subjected to ads. I can't skip. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and DVR for me has been really ideal in that I can skip past the ads. I don't want to see. And, and if something catches my eye, mm -hmm. I can watch it and then move on. Yeah. Uh, but but it's a strange phenomenon that after seeing what DVR has done to people's viewing habits, that you have this service, uh, Hulu or Hulu Plus, that forces you to watch an ad or two before and, and during whatever you're watching. Yeah, but not for long. It's not going to last. I mean, if people just won't put up with it. If there's some... You know, if there's another way to get that show that doesn't require you to do that, even if it requires you spending 99 cents, I think more people are going to make that decision. It's just so weird now to like, uh, yeah, just to see to see an ad for something that I don't care about. I mean, even even just what Facebook's doing with with uh, with online advertisement, where they gleefully allow you to close an ad and tell them why you didn't want to see that ad, because of course the advertiser loves it because that means. You know, if I'm happily married, I don't need to see ads for a dating site, right? So I close those, and 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 now that advertiser isn't going to spend any more money showing me that ad. So they love it, you know? And Facebook loves it because now the next ad they show me has a better chance of being something I actually will pay attention to. So w everybody wins when you are when, – when the system starts putting ads in front of you that you're actually interested in seeing – you know, it's it's hilarious how much of my time I spend avoiding one type of ad online so I can watch another type of ad, you know? Like, the only times I ever see, like, unskippable pre-roll ads on videos online is when I'm trying to either watch a new hot movie trailer or a new hot game trailer. 
And I'm sitting there thinking, like, what kind of idiot? Or, or maybe a music video. And I'm sitting there thinking, what kind of idiot am I that, like, I'm here watching marketing material and I'm being forced to watch an ad before I watch an ad? You know, like, there's an <laughs> ad for a movie I'm trying to watch. And apparently I'm willing to, you know, sit through a five-hour energy drink commercial in order to see it. Mm -hmm. So you said uh, a little bit ago that you no longer have the ambition to be a, a great commercial director. Is that because of uh, of your kind of frustration with the state of advertising, or is it because of, of you kind of uh, focusing on other things like like features and, and so on? Well, I was saying that bit tongue in cheek. I mean, I, I I could I could try to take credit for how slow my career as a commercial director has been, but that would be that would be wrong. I, it, it, yeah, there isn't, there aren't a ton of opportunities for the type of big, expensive, you know, elaborate commercials that I used to do these days. Mm -hmm. um, if one came around tomorrow, I would take it, um, and I would work really hard to do a great job at it. Um, but I've, you know, in the past two years, made the conscious effort to develop my feature filmmaking career, which has, you know, in, meant a conscious awareness that I will not be really behind a camera. Um, in a professional capacity for a while that I'm going to be behind a keyboard in a professional capacity. You know, I'm going to write my way into the director's chair, probably, or, or, or certainly, uh, um, if not writing myself, uh, writing is going to be a strong part of it if I'm collaborating with another writer or whatever. So um, it's... Uh, I, the way I tend to put it is being an unemployed feature director is a full-time job. Um, I, the opportunity cost now of doing a commercial that isn't really something that excites me is that I'm not pushing my feature career forward. And, uh, so I'm committed to that, that feature side of it. And that does mean that, um, you know, I haven't shot a commercial in over a year. Do you still have agencies contacting you with boards, uh, frequently or, or not as much? Well, it's less so, but I am I'm like non-exclusively repped by a couple different companies, and so I do you know I do see boards from time to time. Um, uh, but I have I guess the luxury of not uh, uh, of <laughs> I have the luxury of being being selective, um, and then I also I, I don't know I just uh, it, it, the, the timing just couldn't have been better. I mean, if I was depending on being a commercial director right now, I think I would be. Um, I would, I would just be exploring, you know, the, the, we're going to endure a lot of Adam Lissigo ripoffs and I would not want to ever be one of those, but I've been, th and I think a lot of people should be thinking the way uh, this way is like thinking about what's your sort of personal take on what he's doing. If you, if you abstract what he's doing out to the level of just show, don't sell, um, you know, and develop kind of in parallel this notion that you can represent a brand well but that you also have a personal brand that is trustworthy that you can apply to different clients i think that's a worthwhile way of thinking and i'm actually interested in that like i am actually i actually think that uh you know that there's space for that and the way i you know i get to explore that is when new boards come in you know um and uh and it's and i'll be willing to lose a couple jobs uh, now, uh, it, by trying to sort of push a more honest and transparent style to w whatever comes across my plate, uh, because of that active interest that I have. So I don't, I don't, I would love to be a part of 
what I think is a is a pretty important title shift in in uh, in how advertising works. Um, but uh, uh, but I'm not going to do it at the expense of of pursuing my feature career because it's a uh, that's an easy uh, uh, the the co the commitment to doing the next thing has always been uh, an important part of my career. You know. I mean, it is interesting how kind of this this confluence of of new technology and easier ways to make great images has come about with this frustration with the typical way that advertising is done. Um, you know, a lot of uh, so there's a lot of opportunity now. I think to do uh, to do web content like the kind of stuff that that Adam is doing, and and that's sort of what I do. And and a lot of uh, a lot of my clients will show me Adam's stuff and say, Hey, can you do something like this? So mm -hmm. there yeah. is there is definitely a you know a sense that uh, especially with startups, that people are interested in in that style and exploiting that style. Uh, oh yeah, it's just to the, you just expect now if you go to some new website that offers some cool new service that the first thing you're going to see on their page is going to be a, a video that's going to have some pleasantly plinky music and a hipster there gently explaining to you how the thing works. It's, it's oh, kind totally. of like there's just no other way to start anything now the, to, than to have that. So that uh, that's that's great. And and I think I mean I wonder I, I'd love to ask you. When a client comes to you and says, "We would like something that is in that kind of Adam Lissagor vein," like what? How do you, how do you bring something personal and, and unique to that? Because what I found looking at Adam's work is that it's easy to have a sense that Adam has a style, but actually, if you look at each one of the things he's done, it's different every time. Right. And right. he's always bringing something quirky and, and a sense of humor and cleverness to it that I think would be easy for a client to kind of miss on aggregate and say, well, it's just basically a guy holding an iPad and talking to you while sitting on a couch. You know, well, actually, you know what? It's really not. Like, and I wonder, uh, I'd love to know what your experience has been like kind of uh, navigating those waters. So there have been two occasions where a client has approached me and said, um, and shown me an Adam Lizagor video and have said, hey, uh, we're interested in doing something in this style. Mm -hmm. And in one case, um, it was the uh, the Groupon Now video, which I don't think um, is really a uniquely Adam video, but it was uh, my introduction to Adam. Uh, the client showed me this video, and uh, and I looked it up and, and saw these other videos that he had made and was really impressed with his work. Um, and since then, another client has uh, has approached me um, and shown me one of his videos, actually the, the Jambox video. Uh, and asked to to do something similar to that, and and that actually ended up being uh, we we ended up com doing something completely different. However, with the uh, Groupon Now style video, that client was a lot more adamant about doing something in that type of vein. So the the idea that both uh, the client and and us could agree on was uh, was what we ended up going with, which was uh, we ended up adding a effects element uh, where she's interacting with uh, a effects version of the product is that that's the one where she's she's like uh, she's actually like booping it in like typing it on the floating iPhone screen that's out in front of her yeah 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 did you uh, w did you actually put any effort into trying to get her hand to land anywhere near where those letters were going to be or did you just know that it was going to blow by so fast that no one would be able to tell if she did it right or not no we, we did and and it was very difficult for her to do that. 
uh, while saying lines and looking at the camera and walking and you know the whole thing. Oh uh, yeah, well I, I don't who who possibly could. I mean that's you know there's a reason that they don't let actors drive their own cars. It's not because actors don't know how to drive. It's because what they do turns on a part of their brain that turns off pretty much the rest of it. So. Yeah, it's 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 <laughs> no, I don't I don't think that's I don't think that's a terrible thing to say about the craft of acting. No, no, not at all. And I and I and I I mean I couldn't do it. I mean yeah. I uh, you know I have trouble uh, che chewing gum and walking. Yeah. So I mean I think uh, you know that uh, it, it was sort of like e before every shot we had to prep her on exactly where her hands had to go. Oh yeah, no no, I'm sure yeah. Yeah, and it was it was a, a painstaking process. But anyway, I mean I mean to, to speak to to that, I mean there's. You know, a, a company will see one of Adam's videos and go, "Hey, I want this is what I want. I yeah, want this yeah. for my product." And it's like, "Yeah, how do you?" You know, it's it's kind of like, "Okay, well, can we take this approach to it?" And there's sort of this, um, you know, trying to uh, trying to make it your own, but at the same time, give them what they want, uh, kind of thing. Yeah, I I always look back to Adam's. I guess it's kind of Adam's prototypical spot. He he is um, for for his Birdhouse app. Um, yeah. You know, it's like shot with a crappy camera. The lighting's not great. It's a little blown out. But he's sitting there being super mellow and saying, "This is how this works, and here's what you do." And then, and then he interrupts himself and says, "Wait, that, that gives me an idea for a tweet." And he yeah, jots down the idea for the tweet. And then yeah. he keeps going. And then he goes, "Wait, wait, pardon me." And then he goes back and he edits the edits the joke, and the joke uh -huh. does get better. And you're like, and 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 then. He, and then he keeps explaining the thing to you, and then he says, oh, hey, sorry, one more sec. And then he goes back and, and makes one final adjustment to the joke, and then he tweets it. And, yeah. I, and, and you realize in that moment that you just... You he just, just demoed had, the product. He just demoed the product, yeah. but not in a way that's like, here's how it works. It's like, here's how it works with your brain. You know, here's how mm -hmm. this makes you funnier on Twitter. And... and and I, you know, I watched, I, it was recently that I thought, you know, I should go back and like really like look at everything he's done. Mm -hmm. And I went and watched that ad and I, and I bought the damn app because I suddenly <laughs> got it, you know? Yeah. And, you know, that's obviously the best thing you can say about an ad, you know, is that it freaking worked, you know? Right. And, um, and it is. And that would be the thing I think that would be easy to miss about his style is that he's actually thinking about a way to get sneakily inside your head he's he's like a very a very smooth you know uh he's 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 like a roofie in a really delicious cocktail like he is just <laughs> he, it's like you yes. enjoy it while it's going down and then before you know it you're agreeing to all kinds of stuff that you never would have otherwise it, it, it's it, I, he's he's a freaking genius right I agree. I agree completely. And and for those of us who are going to be called upon to you know to to ape his style by by clients who who don't know any better than to just say I want it to be like what he's done, I think the burden is really difficult to 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 think about not the obvious tropes of his style that are easy to duplicate, but the um, but what makes each of his spots unique and uh, clever and smart and um, and effective. Yeah, and and also I think it comes down to the, the product too, because you know if you if you have a crappy product, it's going to be much harder to to uh, be excited about it and and create something that's going to be excited about it.
Yeah. Well, and, and and I think the 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 corollary to that is that audiences are more sophisticated, and they're going to know that if you do a lot of hand waving, that maybe you don't have that much to talk about. It's it's so, so this is something I actually I'm pretty sure I mentioned this in the DV Rebels guide. I that like, you know, if if you say if you say I left my keys on the kitchen counter. And I hear you say that. I'm going to believe with 100% certainty that you that you that you did. Hmm. But if you say I'm absolutely positive that I left my keys on the kitchen counter, what you're really saying is you're not so sure. And so, in an odd way, the more emphatic you are about something, the more you're telegraphing to the person you're communicating to that you're not personally very sure about it. So the more you know. I, I think we're getting to the point where it's where, where it, the more you try to dress up an idea, the more people might be uh, suspicious that the idea itself isn't really all that great. And uh, and so you're right. Adam's simple style does require, uh, I should say, Adam's deceptively simple style does require that the idea be solid. Yeah, and that's the other thing too about. Um about him too is his, uh, his he, he will you know he states that he will not do a video for a product that he does not believe in uh, and and how many people can say that you know yeah I mean yeah. that's that's I think that's so rare uh, well, you know what I what I, what that what that reminds me of is what I hear a lot of my favorite podcasters say is you know that they don't take on advertising because they they have to sit there and read the copy and, and bring a personal voice to it and it would be hard for them to do that if it wasn't something that they believed in so I just wanted to talk about where you're going with your career. I mean, you're you're developing uh, one feature or two, or what's your what's going on with you currently? Uh, yeah, I'm. I, the trick with that is to do as as much as you can. So I'm 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 developing several. I'm I'm developing one with a production company called Bold that people have probably heard of because um, they did the movie Drive. Um, they uh, they they also. Uh, produced a, a movie called Legion that my friend Scott Stewart directed and um, he is producing for me to direct a movie there called PsyOps and that is in active development. We're working with a team of really great writers and they're working on it. Um, I uh, wrote my own original screenplay and I'm uh, actively in the process of uh, trying to get financing for that right now. Um, and then I am working with uh, writer friend on another screenplay that we're doing the story together. He's writing, but I'm attached to direct, and and then I I take a lot of general meetings. I spend a lot of time in LA. I don't I don't live there, but I, I visit a lot, and I spend and I and I take a lot of general meetings. And every once in a while, I read a script that I'm passionate about, and I um, throw my hat in the ring to direct it as an open assignment. And and uh, I've gone to bat for maybe three or four of those uh, in the last couple of years and I got close on a couple uh, which is kind of cool um, and it's and I learned something every time it happens but I'd like to if not um, have my feature directorial debut be something that I that I wrote at the very least I'd like to have it be something that I was strongly involved in the story development on because I feel like it's just gonna put me in a better position um, you know sitting on the set I'm just gonna be m more intimately familiar with the story and I'll probably do a better job um, so I'm, so I, I, the big difference between me and other people with my background is that I'm actively generating 
uh, my own material. You know, there there could be a ton of former visual effects supervisor, commercial director types out there trying to direct a movie. And if the movie really just, if those are the only criteria, there are going to be people with sexier reels than me or whatever. But, um, uh, but, but very few of those people are, are willing to spend uh, every day sitting in front of a blank page in Final Draft and, and cranking out screenplay pages. And that's, so that's what I've been focused on doing. And, and that's, uh, that's, that's been the commitment of the last couple of years. And it's, it's starting to bear fruit, uh, I think, finally. So j- just as a quick corollary to that, um, I, uh, I did an interview with uh, Vincent LaFerre uh, that hasn't gone up yet, but we, oh, were, yeah. uh, we were talking about his, uh, he's kind of doing the same thing, yeah, you know, yeah. looking for a feature, feature film to direct. Um, and, and we were kind of talking about the sort of state of, of um, you know, Hollywood right now in that a lot of, of commercial directors or, or first-time directors are kind of getting these projects that are, you know, remakes of, um, you know, like Michael Bay has a company called Platinum Dunes that, that yeah. remakes uh, 70s horror films, and, and everything's kind of a remake or a reimagining or, or off of some other franchise. Uh, how, how is it to write your own original script, and, and what are the, you know, what, what's, what's that like, do you think, in terms of, of uh, the way the market is right now? Well, you know, the funny thing is that, yeah, you know, I, I guess it's kind of famous now at this point that, that uh, is it Warner Brothers who, like basically kind of just let um, uh, uh, Christopher Nolan um, do Inception as kind of a favor. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is kind of how the story gets gets you know gets passed along. I'm sure it's a little more nuanced than this, but you know that it's like, well, we got to keep our Dark Knight guy happy, so let's let him make this little movie that isn't based on. Uh, you know, a kids' TV show or a board game from the '80s, um, and uh, and it turns out to be awesome. You know, District Nine was hugely inspirational to me. I'm a big, big fan of uh, Neil Bloomkamp's work. I used to compete with him in the commercial sphere, and always felt like it was a real privilege to even do so. And and um, and uh, and then I felt like I should send him a bottle of champagne when he uh, made District Nine because not only is it a great movie, but it showed uh, that a someone with my s- similar background could um, really tell the living heck out of a great story, and uh, and 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 it was really it's just such a great example of visual effects being used to a, to a storytelling end. Um, uh, so you know, there. Yeah, and and also that is kind of reminiscent of the kind of movies that aren't really made that much anymore, like Predator or you know. Um, uh, the the kind of action movies that you bring up in your book too, the DV Rebels Guide, and, and yeah. the the intro, the uh, you know, yeah, the, the die first hard page. And... I think, yeah, I mean, that's you know, the book's you know now several years old, and yet in the, on that very first page, I'm sitting there talking about Hollywood isn't making the right kind of movies anymore, and and it's right. up to us, you know. So I think that's what that what that means is that you know, I I looked at District Nine, I looked at the first Terminator film, I I, I set out to write a script for myself that was that could be made at at, at a scale because the truth is. I am not obsessed with telling a gigantic story, you know, and I've passed on projects that were incredibly visual effects intensive. You know, I think there's a natural inclination of like, well, you know, 
we have a story that has that has wall to wall effects or creatures or whatever, and and uh, w- you know we're going to need someone with a visual effects background. It's like no, no, you really don't. You know the visual effects part, you can hire a guy to do that. Like what you really need is someone who can tell a good story. <laughs> so I've kind of tried to been like kind of almost undermine my own credibility on the visual effects side. Like don't hire me because I know. How the, actually the reason that you should hire me because I know visual effects is that I know them well enough that I won't be distracted by them. And on the day, I won't be sitting there going, "How are these visual effects going to work?" I'll be working with my actors, confident knowing that the visual effects are are, are going to be handled properly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a it is a scary landscape out there in terms of how movies are getting made and and I think bad decisions are are being made every day about what kinds of movies are getting what kinds of budgets and whatnot but the the good news is that the the decision making about basing movies on pre-existing material versus not is not actually panning out a hundred percent successfully in terms of the box office returns you know there are surprise hits that come out of uh, original ideas and there are flops that are remakes or based on pre-existing material so um the the pendulum you know the, the the titanic that is hollywood steers very slowly but they'll eventually kind of realize that they're they're scraping up against something i think i i it, it it's the other thing i have to say is that like I've seen visual effects and and uh and commercial director background folks jump into the fire and direct really big movies and I've seen that go well and I've seen it go not well and my I believe in setting myself up for success and having worked with Robert Rodriguez you know he shared with me some of his philosophies about that stuff and you know one of the things he said is like look uh, under you know 40 million dollars was kind of the magic number for him working with the wine scenes it was like under that under that amount i can do whatever i want and i can make a black and white movie starring bruce willis if as long as it comes in under 43 and a half million dollars or whatever you know and <laughs> but above that people start looking over your shoulder and saying, eh, well, maybe it shouldn't just be black and white and maybe it's you know maybe if bruce willis is going to be I mean, it should be in the whole thing and maybe you know uh, you, so so uh, you know. I, I think sort of famously, he was uh, he was offered uh, uh, whatever version of John Carter of Mars was kind of floating around at the time, and they they gave, they said, you know, will you, will you do this movie for sixty five million dollars? And he said, no, I'll do it for forty. And they said, uh, no. And that was great. You know, what a cool thing to do and <laughs> say. I will not take that huge chunk of money and set myself up for you to breathe down my neck the whole time. I will take a much smaller amount and do it my way. And and uh, so for him to know that about himself is pretty cool. And so I, that's kind of been my approach too. Is like I don't want someone to be sitting there going, "The success of our studio depends on Stu's movie being a success." I want. I want to make a movie at a scale where it's really not that hard for it to be a financial success. Right. All right, on that note, thank you so much, Stu. I really appreciate it. Uh, my, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. And that was the great Stu Mashowitz. This has been episode seven of this podcast. You can find this and all the other episodes of this show at swayproductions.com and on iTunes. Feel free to send your questions, comments, and guest suggestions to ron at swayproductions.com and please put spotcast in the subject matter this is ron small saying goodbye